Welcome to The Nathan Berry Show, episode 11. In this episode, I want to do two things. First, I want to share with you a whole bunch of cool ideas that have quite literally changed my life. Second, I want to give credit to at least where I first learned those ideas. You know, none of my ideas are original. Really, I don't know that anyone has original ideas. I just implement them in my own way with my own spin on it and try to give credit where credit's due. So that's a big part of what this podcast episode is about. In honor of this being the 11th episode of The Nathan Berry Show, I'm going to share with you 11 ideas that have changed my life. Idea number one, slow, consistent progress is the way to get anything done. So this comes from an article written on lifehacker.com by Brad Isaac, and it's titled Jerry Seinfeld's Productivity Secret. And the story goes something like this. When Brad was a, you know, a young comedian wanting to learn more, he ran into Seinfeld at a club and he asked him basically, how do I become a comedian? And Seinfeld responded and said, well, it's pretty simple. You tell good jokes. And to tell good jokes, you need to write good jokes. And in order to write good jokes, you need to write a lot of jokes. And so his system, supposedly, was to get a big wall calendar that had uh, you know, the entire year shown on one giant page. And the goal is to write jokes every day. So... He'd sit down that day, write jokes, and then take a red marker and make a big X crossing out that day, and so on, until you get three or five days in a row. It starts to look like a chain. And then the goal becomes to not break the chain. And so, you know, maybe when you get towards the end of the day and you're like, oh, I should write jokes, uh, but I don't want to. And oh, but then I've got, you know, 15 days in a row. I don't want to break that chain. The longer the chain gets, the less you want to break it. That's the basic idea. Now, there was a Reddit uh, Ask Me Anything thread that Seinfeld did, and he was asked about this, and he said, I have no idea what that's about, Um, you know. So whether the story is true or not doesn't matter. You know, my philosophy on this is you put a little, "Eh, change my life, doesn't matter. So I had a habit of not finishing things and not making progress. And so after reading this article, I thought, okay, here's a way that I can actually make progress. And uh, it made a huge, huge difference. I actually even made an iPhone app called Commit. If you want to get it, just go to the App Store and search Commit uh, that helps you track these habits. So I've put all kinds of different things in there from you know, writing to uh, practicing double unders with jump rope, something I'm still trying to work on. Uh, all kinds of things that I've tracked in there a habit that I want to form and people have used it for all kinds of things exercise as well Um, but that brings me to the second point which is along the same lines and it's about writing a thousand words per day a few years ago I read a blog post on Chris Gillibo's blog where he made a fairly outrageous claim and he said you know it's not that hard to write a traditionally published book a couple self-published books uh 100 blog posts on your own site, 50 guest posts, some magazine articles, and all that. It's not that hard to do that in one year. 
and at this point, I'm like, okay, that's ridiculous. I ha- would be happy to just even finish this book idea that I have. But I kept reading. He said, it's not that hard if you just write 1,000 words a day. And at first, 1,000 words a day sounded like a ton. Then I started looking at it more and go, okay, it's basically two, maybe two and a half pages. I could do that. At the time, I was working on writing a book called the App Design Handbook, and I was slowly making progress. Actually, it was looking pretty likely that I was going to do the exact same thing I'd done with all my previous books, which was uh, make a little bit of progress when I was motivated, drop off the face of the earth because I had lost interest and never finish or ship the book. So I knew I needed to do something different than that in order to finish. And this idea that Chris had of writing a thousand words a day made sense. And I just recently read the Lifehacker article on, you know, don't break your chain. So I combined those two, put it in my, you know, in my app commit saying, I will write 1000 words every day. And I wrote a thousand words, checked it off. And the next day it popped up and said, Hey, you're going to write a thousand words today. And I worked on that. And it took me a while to build up a habit. You know, I got to, I think, eight days in a row and then missed a day and it reset. And 15 days in a row, missed a day and it reset. But then eventually I got to a really meaningful number. And I did release the App Design Handbook and it entirely changed my business because it made a bunch of money. Uh, But the other remarkable thing that happened was I was at almost 80 days in a row of writing a thousand words a day by the time I finished the app design handbook and by the time I published it. And so the next day my phone popped up and said, are you going to write a thousand words today? And I actually, I think this was a kind of a defining moment in my career as a blogger or author, because my thought then was, no, I'm not going to, I, I already, I finished my book. I met my goal you know, pat myself on the back, move on. But at that point I realized, no, I want to keep this chain going. I've got almost 80 days in a row. I want to keep going and seeing, see what it turns into. And so I kept writing and all that writing turned into another book that I released 90 days later called designing web applications. And it went really well. I I wrote a third book and I've just been uh, writing pretty much ever since. And that has given me an entirely new business, uh, made really a lot of money. Made a lot, I've made a lot of friends and connections through the process. Chris Gillibo is now a good friend. And uh, I've got him to thank for that idea. And uh, Jerry Seinfeld to thank for the other idea, even though he says he had nothing to do with it. So I don't know what the story is on that, but you know. Now I should add that I did eventually break that chain. I got it to over, or yeah, over 600 days in a row. And, uh, you know, life got in the way at some point. I broke the chain. Uh, and it took me quite a while, a couple months to restart it. But as I'm recording this today, I've got 51 days in a row of writing a thousand words a day. So I'm getting it back. The next idea is one that changed how I think about writing sales pages. I used to write a sales page just like, well, here's the product. Here's what it does. I hope you like it. And uh, Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman taught me a different method. 
And they didn't like sit down and, and teach me this, you know, in a class format. It's something that I picked up from them over time, but they do have it in a class and it's really good. Uh, and this is the pain dream fix method of writing. And so basically what they're saying is you start out with a pain, a pain that that customer has to hook them in and get them interested in the content. And then, you know, uh, so, you, you know, you paint the picture of this is what the painful world looks like. And then you paint the world, the picture of the dream. Here's what it could look like. And then finally with the fix. And so you show how your product takes that pain and turns it into the dream. This makes for a really great way. And it's just kind of my, my default now going forward when I write a new sales page or a blog post where I'm trying to promote a product. Uh, because I can always write to the pain that the product is trying to solve. And that makes for some catchy headlines. Um, you know, one that I'm thinking of right now is for my book authority. One pain that I'm trying to overcome is that authors can't make money from their work. And so I did a headline that says the idea that authors can't make money is BS. And that catches people in. It, it speaks straight to the pain. And, uh, you know, then I can go through and elaborate on that, share the dream where they could be making quite a bit more money and then talk about the fix, which is the method that I have in my book authority for how to make money as a self-published author. There's plenty of copywriting methods. That's my go-to solution. And I learned it from Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman. Idea number four is that you should always sell your products in multiple packages. And this comes from Chris Gillibo as well. I was having dinner with him a couple years ago in London, actually, after the UK launch of the $100 startup. And, you know, at this time, I was just starting to get into uh, writing books and I wanted to self-publish. And so I was just probably pestering him with all these questions. And he graciously answered all of them. Um, But then as we were leaving the restaurant, he made an offhanded comment that has made me literally over $100,000. And what he said was, oh, by the way, selling in multiple packages has worked really well for me. And I thought, okay, that's cool. I'll uh, check that out. And I didn't think much of it. But then when it came time to put together my sales page for the App Design Handbook, I thought, oh, let's check this out. And so I went to his site and looked at how he had uh, his guides sold not just for one price, but he had three different prices for each one. And I thought, okay, this makes sense. And I started to think through how I would purchase and which one I would purchase. And at that point, I started to realize, make the connection that different people have different buying abilities. And so he was able to cater to both ends of the market because he had, you know, a course, a version of one course available for, say, $150. And then a higher tier version of that same course that had more content, more details, for something like $300 or $400. Same product, you know, at different levels, catering to different ends of the market. And that made a lot of sense to me because I had just come from a world where, you know, I led a software design team. And so I had a company budget, company credit card, and, you know, expenses didn't matter much to me there, where if I thought something would help my design team save time or implement a better product, I'd spend a couple hundred dollars on it without thinking. Because it wasn't my money, and I knew that uh, I knew how expensive my team was to the company, and so I knew that even them saving a few hours was worth hundreds of dollars. 
And then I compared that to where I was at now, you know, now at the time that I was pricing the sales page, I was, I was a freelancer and, uh, I didn't have that company credit card anymore. And so I was much more cautious with my spending since it came right out of my pocket and not from someone else. And so right there, I could see, you know, how those multiple packages could work. And so I ended up pricing, uh, at starting at $39, which was a price that I got from Jared Drysdale. And then I did higher packages from there where in the higher packages, I added videos and code samples and tutorials and more information beyond just the book. And I priced those at $79 and $169. The results were amazing. I could do the math after the launch and see that having multiple packages like that doubled revenue. And so I thought, all right, let's dive into this more. And then I was talking to Patrick McKenzie about pricing. And first he said something like, uh, yours is the first pricing or the, the first product pricing I've seen in a while on Hacker News that doesn't completely suck. So I decided to take that compliment from Patrick because he you know, doesn't give out that many compliments. And you know, not completely sucking is a pretty good one, I think. <laughs> and... Uh, but then I asked him, okay, you kind of like this pricing. What would you do to improve it? And he suggested some slightly different tiers. He liked the $39 price as a base. Uh, and then he said, you know, bump the $79 up to $99 and bump the $169 up to $249. I did that. I tweaked some things on, on the sales page and implemented all that for my next book, which was designing web applications. And that tripled revenue. Absolutely insane. Every product since then, I've had multiple price tiers. And it's made such a huge difference in revenue. So I got to say, well, thanks to Jared Drysdale for giving me that base price of $39. Thanks to Chris Gillibo for making that offhanded comment that made me so much money. And then thanks to Patrick for helping me refine the prices and settle on something that now I use for every product going forward. Idea number five is about selling digital products versus physical goods. And I learned this back in 2008 from Tim Ferriss when I read The 4-Hour Workweek. And it didn't really, I don't know, it didn't really turn into anything for a few years. But here's the quote from the book. There's one class of product that meets all of our criteria, has a manufacturing lead time of less than a week in small quantities, and often permits not just an 8 to 10x markup, but 20 to 50x. And he says, no, not heroin or slave labor. Too much bribing and human interaction required. Information. Information products are low cost, fast to manufacture, and time consuming for competitors to duplicate. It took a few years, but that quote is a big part of why I got into selling design and marketing books and courses online. Basically, you create the product once, you can sell it over and over again in however many copies. It's fantastic. So I love that idea of selling information products, selling training, rather than selling like a physical good. Maybe it's headphones or some art or something that you've created that you have to ship out. Uh, you know, it's just, it's fantastic to sell information. And I first learned that that was possible from Tim Ferriss. On to number six. And that's that you can make a living selling these, you know, digital products, this, this training. Even if it's to a small audience, you can still make a living. So I'd heard stories and, and read posts from Companies like 37 Signals, they came out with their book, Getting Real. 
And it made a lot of money. And they had these blog posts saying like, oh, it made $400,000. It made, I think it passed a million dollars. You know, these crazy numbers that I, as a subscriber of theirs, but also as, you know, a blogger who had zero followers could never relate to that. Because they had a blog audience of 100,000 subscribers. I thought that was crazy. But then two designers, Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale, were generous enough to share some numbers. So purely by chance, they wrote design books that came out on exactly the same day. And uh, Sasha's was a really small book called Step-by-Step UI Design that he sold for a couple dollars. And Jared's book was called Bootstrapping Design, and he sold it for $39. That's where I got the base price for all of my books going forward. What they did is they both went on Jeff Cohen's blog, which is a smartbear.com, and wrote guest posts saying, you know, why their pricing method was better. And the posts were fantastic, but they shared all the numbers. And if I remember correctly, Sasha made about $6,500 in the first 48 hours, and Jared made about $8,000 in the first 48 hours. What was remarkable to me was not that they made that much money, but that they made that much money with a really small audience. They had email lists, but none of them had an email list of more than a couple thousand people. And so that made me think, okay, you can make money with a small audience. And that got me really excited to make progress on the App Design Handbook, which is the the book I was working on at the time. But before reading these posts from them, I was working on it more of, you know, kind of a labor of love. I wanted to teach about how to design iPhone apps. And I also figured it would help me get consulting gigs, which is how I paid the bills then. Until I read those posts from Sasha and Jared, I didn't know that I could make a full-time living off of self-publishing books. Idea number seven is probably one that surprised me the most of all. And uh, whenever I tell this to people, lots of people still don't believe it. But that is that you can travel almost completely for free. Meaning you can get plane tickets, uh, hotel stays, all of that, just paying, you know, maybe 10% of the total cost. And this whole world, there's a whole community that does this, is called travel hacking. And I learned about this from Chris Gillibo. I've referenced Chris a lot in this podcast episode, and that's because he's just taught me so much. And he's the one who introduced me to travel hacking. So here's how it works. You know those offers you get from credit cards where it's like sign up for this and get 10,000 airline miles and whatnot? Well, those are actually pretty good if you play by certain rules. So what, what you do is instead of getting one credit card, you get like five. And instead of getting the crappy ones that I offer you 10,000 points for signing up, you go for the ones that offer you 50,000 or 100,000 points for signing up and meeting a minimum spend. And so what you can do is, let's say you want to go to Hawaii. I live in Boise, and if I want to fly to Hawaii, it's going to cost me 42,500 miles on United. I find a credit card. Um, In this case, let's say the United Mileage Plus Explorer credit card that when I sign up for it, it, depending on the bonus of the time, it'll give you between 35,000 and 55,000 miles for signing up and spending $1,000 in the first 90 days. It's not that hard to do. And then you've got a whole chunk of miles that you can book for that free trip to Hawaii 
It's like a $500, $600 plane ticket that you just got for free. Now, it's not entirely free. You have to pay the taxes and fees. But in this case, those taxes and fees are $5. Actually, that's a slight exaggeration. They're $5 each way, meaning that plane ticket to Hawaii is going to cost you all of $10. I've done this a bunch of times. Uh, I've flown to uh, Costa Rica, to family reunions all around the country. I go to Seattle all the time uh, for free. And I've gone to Hawaii, lots of great places, all for free, taking my family, all of that. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. I think at this point, I'm up to about $15,000 worth of free airfare. Uh, and this makes me a complete amateur in the travel hacking world. People like Chris Gillibo and another friend, Stephanie Zito, have saved you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on plane tickets, especially because they do things like book first class tickets. You know, these tickets that will range anywhere from like eight to $15,000 for a plane ticket can be had for much less if you just book with miles. Now, some of those taxes are higher. Like on an international trip, you might expect to pay, say, like $100 in taxes and fees on a ticket that would normally be $1,200. But I'm totally okay with doing that. It's a pretty sweet system. Uh, you just have to make sure that you know you can win this little game that you play with credit card companies. They have some very set rules. And if you stay within those rules, everything works great. If you deviate from those rules, let's say you do things like... Uh, you don't pay your cards on time. You don't. Uh, you build up a balance, and so you know you're paying interest, things like that. That's when you start to lose. But if you pay your cards on time, don't carry credit card debt, um, and you like to travel, especially if you can travel with flexible dates and you can work the system a little bit, then travel hacking is truly fantastic. If you want to learn more about it, just do a quick Google search for travel hacking. Maybe add Chris Gillibo into that Google search because uh, he's got lots of great resources on it. Idea number eight is that you should focus on a few core products instead of constantly creating new products to make more money. So this comes from a bunch of different friends of mine, uh, but I'm going to give credit to three of them. Jeff Goins, Laura Roeder, and Sasha Grief. So I have this tendency when I want to make more money in my business to release another product. It's a lot of work to write a new book, record an entirely new video course or something like that. But you know, you can launch it to the same audience. A lot of your past customers will buy and it's a good, excuse me. It's a good way to make money. But what happens is you tend to move on from your first product way too soon. And so I would do this where I'd come out with, say, the app design handbook, and then immediately after it launched, uh, you know, and have a good launch, but immediately afterwards, I would move on to creating the next product, meaning I didn't spend the right amount of time marketing the first product. And so I've done this where, you know, after each product, I've gotten excited about making something new, and so I've moved on to the next thing. And what, what you want to do is focus on one maybe two core products and just keep coming back to them. Relaunch them at least a couple times a year, you know, come out with new additions, make them better, get them in front of a new audience. There's all kinds of things you can do with those existing products to continue to drive sales. So long as you focus on it. Now, if you put it out you know, launch it, have a good launch and, and don't promote it anymore, then the sales are going to drop off, but they don't have to. 
And so Jeff Goins, Laura Roeder, and Sasha Grief, all at different times, you know, gradually convinced me of it. And, and it basically took learning from all three of them to make me realize that, you know, you can make a full-time living from one book. You can double down on one product and get it out to lots and lots of people. I think we tend to feel that markets get saturated way more quickly than they actually do. I know in any of the markets that I'm in, I have come nowhere close to saturating them. So by focusing on one core product, you can make sure it gets out to as many people as possible. And then maybe you add other products later on down the road. Idea number nine is that you should syndicate and repost content rather than writing new content in a way that we typically think of as guest posting. So this comes from James Clear. And James spent a lot of time building up a popular blog called PassivePanda.com. And he built this up to, I think, about 18,000 email subscribers, which is really good. And then he did something crazy. He shut it down. He didn't even tell people he was shutting it down. He just moved on and stopped writing for it. And then he worked on what he actually wanted to work on, which was a blog about habits and the things that he found interesting and how to you know, make fitness improvements and, and all of that. And he writes about that at jamesclear.com. So that meant he had to build this all new audience. When he was building Passive Panda, the one thing that he used a lot was guest posts in order to, build, in order to grow his audience, you know, get out in front of other audiences, get them to come back. And so he found himself writing all this original content for you know, other people's audiences, which didn't leave him much time to write great content for his own audience. And that wasn't so good. He didn't like that. So instead, when he was building jamesclear.com, he decided that his very best content was going to be for his readers, and it was going to appear on his site. In fact, he was only going to write content for his site. If other sites wanted to republish it, that's great, but it was going to appear on jamesclear.com first. When I first heard about this, I didn't think many other people would go for it. But it turns out a lot of popular sites republish good articles. So now he has this entire process where for each article he writes, he pitches it to many of these sites like Lifehacker, Huffington Post, uh, and a bunch of you know tech and entrepreneurship magazines as well. If an article is a good fit for them, they'll republish it, linking back to his original site. That gets him in front of you know these new audiences, and he can make sure that he's paying attention to his existing subscribers first. And this has worked amazingly well. Over the last year and a half, almost two years now, James has built his audience from zero up to 80,000 email subscribers, which is the fastest audience growth I have ever seen. The guy's a master. And, uh, you know, he puts out two posts a week. He writes his best content for his audience and then tries to get it syndicated and republished elsewhere. And I love that approach. I plan to do a lot more of it in the future. Idea number 10 also came from a lot of different people. But the idea is basically to use webinars or partnerships in order to promote your product. So I think I first heard about this, you know, in the internet marketing worlds, but uh, directly I heard about it from Brad Fallon, Jeff Goins, and Danny Inney. And uh, I was having a conversation with Brad Fallon. He was asking, out of all of the sales that you've done, how much of it comes from affiliates or joint ventures? And I said, zero, you know, I haven't done any of that. And he laughed because, you know, at that point, I think I'd done a couple hundred thousand dollars in book sales. And, you know, 
I wasn't even using the technique that he thought was the most useful. And I kind of brushed it off because I'd done well without affiliates joint ventures before. And I really didn't like the scammy way that most of the internet marketing world went about it. It just didn't feel right to me. A little while later, uh, I was talking to Jeff Goins and he was, you know, highly recommending it. And he showed me kind of a way to do it that doesn't feel scammy, you know, where you're, uh, people are recommending products that they truly believe in. Everyone does it with integrity and everyone's up front that, you know, they're both making money off of a sale. And he was saying, you know, it's a really good way to get in front of more audiences. Danny Inney was saying the same thing. He showed me some more examples of how webinars could work. Uh, but it wasn't until Brennan Dunn kind of laid out the path exactly that I thought, okay, this is something I need to try. His method, and I think it's a you know a fairly standard method across the industry, is to set up a landing page for a specific workshop. In Brennan's case, it was a workshop on how to double your freelancing rate. And then he has the owner of the site and, you know, kind of a host of the whole thing, send an email to their list saying, you know, we brought Brennan in to teach you all about how to raise your rates, be a better freelancer, that kind of thing. And he's going to teach that in this one hour free workshop. There's the registration page, go sign up. So the advantage to Brennan is that he gets to collect all those email addresses. You know, those people are signing up for his workshop. And so he can get anywhere from maybe a hundred people added to his email list up to a couple thousand. If there's a really big list, that's powerful. That's really valuable to have that many people added to your list. But then he drips out a little bit of content, reminding them about the webinar, getting them to show up live. And when he does, he spends basically an hour teaching them all about, you know, the skills and the mindset needed to double your freelancing rate. And then he's able to tie that in really nicely to his book of the same title. And so the way it works is any sales made off of that audience, he splits 50-50 between himself and uh, the person who owned that original audience. So Brennan and I have done webinars both for W Freelancing Rate, his book, and for my book authority to each other's audiences. And it's been a, a good way to expose each other's audiences to some new ideas and also to make a bit more money without having to create new products. So Brennan's gone on, you know, a little webinar tour where he's done these webinars with, uh, I think, close to 10 different audiences now since uh, releasing the new edition of W Freelancing Rate this summer. And it's worked really well. I think he's well over thirty dollars or $40,000 in sales off these webinars. And he's grown his list by, I think, nearly 5,000 subscribers. So it's a great strategy. It's only going to work once you're a little bit more established and your product has some sales and some good testimonials and you have good relationships within your industry. But it's definitely something to look at for growing your list quickly and making quite a few more sales. To wrap things up, we're going to go with idea number 11. And that's that email marketing is the most profitable way to build an audience. Now, I was pretty late to the email game. In fact, it wasn't until after my first book that I really knew that email could be profitable. And I talked to a friend who'd been doing email marketing and you know online business for close to a decade. And I told him like, you know, wow, these conversion rates are way better than I've ever seen off of Twitter and Facebook. And he was just like, uh-huh, I know. We've known that email marketing is amazing for over a decade now. And I was like, okay, well, I'm late to the party. But I learned it eventually. And email marketing is so powerful 
that I actually decided to build my own email marketing company and tools uh, because the existing off-the-shelf tools didn't work exactly the way I wanted them to and didn't have these best practices that I learned built in by default. So I ended up building ConvertKit, which is an email marketing program designed specifically for authors to help them you know, uh, publish or self-publish their books and, and build their own audiences. Because it really bothers me when you know, maybe someone's selling a book on Amazon or uh, uh, a course on Udemy or any of these places, and they don't actually have a way to contact their readers. Actually, I was speaking at a uh, book marketing event recently. So there's a whole bunch of authors. And I asked for a show of hands, and I said, you know, raise your hand if you can contact more than, say, 90% of the people who have bought your book. Like, you contact them today. And, of course, no hands went up other than my own. And, you know, I was like 50%, 30%. And the, the problem is that all these authors just don't have a way to contact their audience, you know, because they, they don't get that contact information. And so I've been encouraging people to use email marketing because it's amazing for building up to these launches. It gets much higher engagement than Twitter and Facebook. And I find it's actually easier to capture email subscribers um, than it is to get uh, like Twitter followers, Email has been absolutely critical for me building up this self-publishing business and blog over the last couple of years. And I've got an email list of over 25,000 people, and I wouldn't have been able to build it as quickly as I did or sell as many products as I did without using the methods that are built directly into ConvertKit. So we also have a program called ConvertKit Academy. And in that program, we help you get set up on ConvertKit, help you create those landing pages, whatever it is. We'll even design like book graphics and that kind of thing for you. We also get small groups onto Google Hangout together, and then we can talk through you know, whatever issues you're having with your book coming out or uh, any questions you have about email marketing. And the whole goal is to just make sure that you get set up properly and get started. So you can learn more about ConvertKit at ConvertKit.com, and the ConvertKit Academy is at ConvertKit.com slash academy. Email marketing is one of those things that if you ask any successful blogger, What's one thing they wish they started sooner? They'll tell you they wish they started growing an email list sooner. So that's probably one of the most powerful ideas that I've ever learned. And so I think it's a good way to wrap up this podcast episode. Really a big thing that I wanted to do is to give credit. And so I want to list off a few of those people who have had the biggest impact. And, uh, you know, so that's Chris Gillibo, Amy Hoy, Alex Hillman, Tim Ferriss, Sasha Grief, Jared Drysdale, Brennan Dunn, James Clear, Danny Inney, Jeff Goins, Brad Fallon, uh, Laura Roeder. Uh, I hope I didn't miss anybody, but I just want to make sure that I'm giving credit to the people who I got these ideas from. Uh, none of them are original to me. Probably most of them aren't even original to the people I cited, but at least this way I know that I can help point you back to the source And I hope you'll check out their sites, their blogs, and start learning from them directly. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit of a different feel, but it was fun to just kind of make some notes and then record it freeform. Uh, Let me know in the comments if you liked it. Uh, The comments, the show notes, all these links are at nathanberry.com slash episode 11. Thanks for listening.